0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest, we have Jeff Moyer from Dynamic Correspondence, who is back on the show to discuss all things motor learning. Jeff was recently on the podcast back on episode 137, where he discussed biomechanics, special strength training, and training transfer. On this episode about motor learning, Jeff and I discuss where did Jeff develop his passion for motor learning, hard skills versus soft skills, how does Jeff distinguish between a physical capacity limitation versus a skill limitation, Jeff's thoughts on using sprint drills. We discussed the use of re-coordination drills post strength training. What is proactive inhibition within motor learning? What is the role of metacognition, constructivism and mediation in motor learning? The role of specialized exercises in motor learning? Jeff addresses some of the criticisms that some coaches have about special exercises. Jeff talks about the true conjugate sequence system and what it was really about. Jeff talks about the importance of embracing mistakes in the learning process. Jeff then goes on to tell us about the biggest lessons he has learned so far in his career. Jeff gives his top advice and resources to all the listeners. And finally, if Jeff could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, this was a really great episode with Jeff and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Coach Jeff Meyer, it is an absolute pleasure to have you come back on to the podcast, with my friend. Uh, just continuing on from where we left off in our first episode, um, what I've done um, between then and now is I have volume one of the uh, Central Virginia Sports Performance Seminar manual, um, and you wrote a chapter on that, and you've written two chapters in the in the new one, the volume two, which, which I have on its way to me. Um, but the chapter you wrote in Volume 1, Motor Learning, Breaking Bad Habits, uh, was a fantastic chapter. I really enjoyed it. I love the way you, you uh, laid it all out. Very digestible. Um, so maybe, Jeff, can you just – we'll get a little more – I know on the first episode we did speak about special strength training, but let's maybe speak more to the topic now of motor learning and, sure. how, and how that's become really sort of – it almost strikes me as a passion for you because I listened to your episode with Joe – Smith, and I know you've done, uh, done two of them, but the first one you've done um, was more about uh, the modal learning chapter in the Volume 1 manual. So maybe just speak about like how this sort of passion for modal learning came about, and, and sort of, I suppose, the need for coaches to be more aware of it and to understand it more.
1: Yeah, uh, well, my, my academic background is in education. Um, similar to Chris Corfus, I went to school to be a social science teacher. Uh, so those were my what my degrees are in, and uh, um, some teaching's always been a, a deep passion of mine in whatever form. Because I've also been a, a teacher assistant for first and second graders. Um, you know, I've I worked with again ages eight to seventy. Uh, so I, teaching is just a passion of mine. But what really, what really s- struck me with the motor learning. Um, is that the whole story uh, I give a, when I went out to meet Dr. Yeses, uh, the quick synopsis of that is I, uh, I, was, I I just started coaching at a high school um, in upstate New York, and the quarterback at the time, uh, his father was the head coach, and they had been doing training there, uh, meaning quarterback training, you know, seven-on-sevens and, and one-on-ones and quarterback camps and all types of stuff all summer by the time I got there, and this was August. Um, so the quarterback – had already started experiencing elbow pain when I met him, and actually, I think he's been he had been experiencing it since eighth grade, and he was going into his junior season. So this was a big year, and his dad played NFL football, was a college football hall of famer, was a well respected football player and, and coach uh, at the time. Um, so by the third third game of the, of the season, uh, third quarter, quarterback went back for a pass, threw the ball, broke his elbow, broke his after-counter, plate and elbow. Had to have surgery yada yada, yada, we knew it was due to his mechanics um, um, but we just didn't know specifically what well that 's when um, Yosef helped introduce me to Dr. Yassus. We flew it to Dr. Yesis and within instances doctor uh, within an instant Dr. Yesis was able to pinpoint the causes of it because it 's never just one cause mechanically, and then how to fix it and that 's when we went right out across the street to a field and we just started going to work um, and and his knowledge of. Motor learning. A lot, of, a lot of people know Dr. Yeses for his biomechanics and his exercises, but they don't understand that he, he's very well-versed in motor learning um, because all this knowledge is great for us coaches and biomechanics, but if we can't teach it, who cares? Um, and that just really uh, fascinated me. So I started really, uh, again, I started studying education in college, but not in the motor learning realm. So I really started trying to just diverge myself in, in that, um, and Natalia Verkashansky's been a great resource for me to pinpoint me to some some things and stuff like that. Um, my passion for it really comes from, started with that, but uh, I, mean, I, I get a lot of athletes at my facility that don't have the best mechanics. Hmm. And overuse injuries are an epidemic here in the United States, uh, as I'm sure they are over in Ireland too with with youth athletes well athletes in general and to me they're they're due to three three reasons poor mechanics poor physical abilities as they relate to the mechanics and then just uh, lack of recovery so those are the three things we're really trying to to look at so with doc's uh, knowledge and my knowledge in in biomechanics and technique we start there and then we work backwards and depending on what the mechanical issues are um that's where you know the strategy for motor learning comes in so I know dynamical systems theory is becoming uh, a trendy pop term in our industry, and rightfully so. It's it's a great uh, theory, motor motor control, motor learning, but it doesn't solve every issue. Um, And if you have certain mechanical issues, um, you know you need the athlete to be aware of it. They need a, a hierarchical approach to to the learning process. So that's where kind of studying all of the motor learning theories and understanding them all and how they apply. Um, it, it, I think better serves coaches because too many of us are now just clamoring to just dynamical systems theory. But again, that doesn't solve, that's just one theory that doesn't solve all motor learning issues. Um, so, yeah, that's my quick little synopsis on that, I guess.
0: So, in, in that chapter, and, and we just, it was funny because for the listeners, I, I asked Jeff this just as we got, uh, just before we started recording. And he starts going into this like great answer and I'm like, stop, stop it. I'm going to press record now because we get into this one, miss gold. So here come the nuggets, people. But uh, in, in the chapter, I, you talk about hard skills versus uh, soft skills. And I was saying to you that that really struck me very much like um, France bosses, um, attractors and fluctuators. The attractors being the, the hard skills and then the fluctuators being the soft skills. So... So the hard skill to me or the attractor is that sort of global movement map of a particular skill or movement in general. Whereas the soft skill or fluctuators uh, is that variability, that that, that input we get from the environment and our ability then to uh, reflectively correct or control our degrees of freedom. So... Maybe could you speak about like exactly what hard and soft skill yeah. is or what you meant by it, and, and is it similar sort of, to this landscape of, of attractors and fluctuators that Fran sort of talks about?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I got – I can't uh, – I'm not going to take credit uh, for the terms hard skills, soft skills. I got that from, I believe, Daniel Coyle in his book, The Talent Code, um, talked about that. But uh, a hard skill is the ideal mechanical – you know, whatever the issue is. So let's just say for running, it's the ideal mechanics in a linear sprint. You know what I mean? We're trying to work on the knee drive. We're trying to work on the, uh, the, 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 paw back and landing underneath the hips and the foot placement and all, all that stuff ideally. But then the soft skill is how is it applied in sports? Because as you know, in rugby or in, in uh, soccer or football, you don't run in a, in a straight linear line. So that's how, how does it fluctuate? Within to me, within the the hard skills, there are uh, key movements, and that to me is more the attractors. Uh, key movements are the force the force generating uh, actions um, in the movement. The key force generating actions in the movement, and understanding those will help the global uh, how to construct better the global uh, picture of the hard skill, and then again, and how they are used in with the fluctuators you know, based off of the uh, sensory information and, 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 and the movements and stuff like that. Um, so to me, the attractor is a little more like key movements, which Verkashansky talks about. Um, and I've tried to, this is kind of of currently where my, my interest and my, my research studies lie. Um, because I've had the good fortune of of spending time with Dr. Natalia Verkashansky and Skyping with her and, uh, she, I wrote a, an article on specialized exercises, the history of them for elite fitness uh, some time ago, and she helped edit my chapters or my, my articles, and uh, um, she, we talked a good deal about the key movements, and she said uh, her father got that uh, because Yuri was a uh, Dr. Yuri Verkashansky was a big proponent of uh, Nikolai Bernstein. Uh, Dr. Bernstein, uh, which everyone who in our industry should know if they don't already, um, it was an idea taken from his. He didn't use the term key movements. He used something like that, but he, uh, Dr. Berkashansky took that uh, idea from Bernstein, that at least that's what Dr. Natalia uh told me. Um, and so that's where the principle of dynamical correspondence comes from, is selecting exercises based off of these key movements. Mm. Um, and so then I wanted to research it more. So if it came from Bernstein, I wanted to, I mean, I can't learn from him because he passed away some years ago. So I, I, I tried to reach out to the next knowledgeable person in, in Bernstein's work, and that's Professor Mark Ladish uh, at the University of Penn State, who's written, you know, Paul Bernstein, or helped translate Bernstein's books and written, he's one of the experts in motor control in the world. Um, And he's a super nice gentleman, and I've had the good fortune of uh, passing emails and Skyping with him. And uh, he says he does remember uh, Bernstein talking about this, but he didn't, again, he was such a genius that he didn't use the the term, he didn't have a term for it, he just talked about it. And then there's a lady, um, oh my gosh, Natasha... Deirdre, I hope I don't, I'm going to butcher her name, out in University of Arizona State, where she's, written, um, she's writing motor control theories uh, on the leading joint hypothesis, which is kind of taking a page out of this key movement uh, idea. However, it's only singling one key movement in, in all movements, and she's doing research on that, and I've had the good fortune of, of uh, talking with her. Um, but key movements, again, in all sporting movements – let's say, running, jumping, kicking, throwing, there are key force-producing actions, and understanding those will help you how to correct technique and kind of cause and effect of certain things. So that's where, uh, to me, what attractors are and then how they fluctuate within sports and, and monitoring those. But, uh, yeah, hope that makes sense.
0: So then what another question that was come, also comes to my mind in terms of um, changing a particular movement pattern is, How are you differentiating between is the limiting factor a physical capacity or buyer motor quality versus is it actually a motor control skill issue? Are you looking at – so would you be sort of looking at an athlete and saying, right, well, I actually know this athlete pretty well. I know their numbers in the weight room, so I know that they do have – they they should have or do have the general strength qualities and physical capacities – uh, in place so i'm deferring that this 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 is a, a motor control or skill issue it's not a capacity issue because i know what i know how strong they are or or um or vice versa could it could be like well i know that quite weak so it could be a skill thing but it could be just the fact that they don't have the physical capacity the strength or whatever else to allow them to get into a position to to actually execute that skill so how, how do you go about that sort of conundrum
1: well with the majority of my athletes that I work with, uh, they're high schoolers uh, and, and college athletes, so it's usually both. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I haven't had too many instances where it's been just one or the other. It's usually both. Um, so I work on both. Um, and then, you know, how much time we spend with well, each kind of depends on the athletes and what we see improvements in. Uh, I can give you a quick case study of an athlete. I had six weeks to work with uh, a high schooler, highly recruited uh, high school football running back. Um, I had six weeks to work with him, um, and he had pretty good general numbers. He already came in squatting, you know, an easy, like, 430 squat for me for a high school running back that's pretty good. Wow. Um, you know, bench press, 315 a couple times. Uh, for Again, for a high schooler, I, I didn't think general strength was his limiting factor, but he ran a one uh, electronic 181. Ten yard sprint, um, uh, his forty got timed at like a 4.8. Uh, how how, how basic, much? How much did this weigh? He weighed about one eighty five, one ninety. Yeah, it's pretty good. For and he's five eleven. Um, he's going to hate me because I'm not saying he's six foot, but he's five eleven. Um, so in six weeks, I didn't think working on strength was going to be his issue. So we looked at his mechanics. Mechanically speaking, he lacked a uh, sufficient knee drive. His paw back was weak uh, as far as foot placement and striking the ground in relation to the other knee. Um, his uh, uh, his push-off with his uh, ankle extension was lacking, and he had a history of ankle ish- injuries. His, his back was uh, a bit rounded. So we knew... Uh, just I, Based off of his mechanics, that's how we directed the training. So we knew... Just generally strength-wise, as it relates to the mechanics, uh, that was causing some of the motor control or the movement issues. So we worked on that in six weeks. He did, uh, first two weeks, he did two, uh, a set of 20, three times a day, um, and only ran a mile. And then on the last four weeks, that's when we kind of went to more of your, I guess, traditional upper-lower split, um, uppers on, or uh, lower on Monday and Thursday, upper on, uh, uh Tuesday and Friday. Um, but we did exercises trying to emphasize what he was weakened. So his GHR, his glute ham raise, uh, was terrible. Um, and we perform it the way Dr. Yesis does with a double contraction of the hamstrings, not just, a uh, down by the, uh, uh, insertion, not just a knee curl. Uh, so it's a bit different. He did multiple sets of pawbacks, multiple sets of knee drives. He did some different jumping. And then on his lower body days, he would do flying, uh, flying sixties. And then on his upper body days, he would just do, I think 10- or 20-yard sprints, just four of them. And in that time, he took his flying 60 down, 5 tenths of a second. His 40-yard time down went down from an electronic 4.8 to electronic 4.6. His electronic 10-yard went from a one eight one to a 1.56 um, in, in, that, in that short span. So that was, uh, to give you an example of how his training was dictated by his mechanics and the weaknesses that we saw. Uh, with that so his some of his mechanical issues were just general weaknesses but we we looked at the mechanics first we didn't do a lot of like mini hurdle drills or dribbling drills or you know what I mean a skips b skips and things like that we just kind of i had six weeks i didn't have a lot of time uh, so we just kind of got to work so i hope that makes sense was as far as his mechanics dictated exactly what we needed to do in that six weeks and it, it seemed to transfer pretty well
0: do you utilize much sort of uh, dr- drill work in terms of things like A, B, C skips or mini hurdle runs. If if you had more time with athletes, or uh, I, I do. Um, I don't like A, B skips. I'm a former college track
1: athlete and football player. I never saw like a uh, much of a. I like it for my lower level athletes for just keep teaching rhythm. Mm.
0: Um, Same.
1: But I, I don't see a transfer to mechanics with that stuff. I never have. So I don't do that. As far as mini hurdle drills, I love doing mini hurdle drills. Um, uh, We do a lot of those. That's something that I like because you can, you know, without giving a cue, you can see immediate changes in mechanics and stuff like that. Uh, And I try to do, I like some learning strategies. I like to couple certain things, almost like a contrast. So we'll go do those mini hurdle drills, and then we'll come in, we'll do a couple of our specialized exercises as far as, Pawbacks and knee drives, and then we'll go back out, and we'll do the mini hurdle drills one more time. And the you know I like try to get the athlete's feedback because I always want them to be able to describe to me what they're feeling and understand their feelings mm-hmm. because sensory information is going to help with the with the with the learning. And then we'll do. I'll have them run alongside of the hurdles, but not over the hurdles because eventually I have to get rid of the hurdles uh and try to replicate how it feels to run over it and uh, we video all this and we come in and we also because i have an apple tv so we can airplay it within seconds um up on my television to, to get immediate w- uh, watching and feedback but uh so i like using mini hurdles a lot uh and i like using it coupled with uh, specialized exercises um for learning purposes
0: how do you determine the spacings of your mini hurdles? Because there was a question I had with the altus, and the guys altus were like, uh eh, it's kind of trial and error.
1: Yeah, trial and error. Um, I I try to look at my athletes' leg lengths and try to get general ideas. Um, I'd rather start them too close than too far away, and then the athletes are kind of going in survival mode. You know what I mean? They're having to swing their their legs around, or they're 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 trying to leap, and the mechanic the mechanics kind of go to shit. Um, it t-
0: turns into like a bound then almost. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Um, or they're trying to do like a stiff leg thing because they're trying to get over the hurdles. And, again, they just kind of go more into survival mode, and they just don't want to trip and fall. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I start close and, and work out. But, yeah, it's, it's trial and error. Um, something that I've incorporated from Chris Corfus that, that I took away from the track consortium is drawing uh I spray in a 30-yard line down the middle of our uh, parking lot. And we put the mini hurdles up running uh, with the line right down the middle of it. So from a foot strike perspective, uh, try not to have the athletes cross over that line. So I like doing that when yeah, that's I heard, needed. Yeah,
0: I, I heard Chris said that on Joe's podcast. So it's not always, yeah, never. so
1: that's a great drill when it's needed. Um, you know, not not always do I want the athletes to focus on that. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Depends on what we're trying to work on. But, yeah, that, that's something nice that we do. So I always try to line up the hurdles right down the big, long line that I have out back. <laughs>
0: Piggybacking off that question I was asking, like how you differentiate between a physical capacity and and a skill issue, Uh, a really interesting concept that was brought to my attention by um, John Goodwin, one of our lecturers at St. Mary's, he spoke about this kind of idea of you could could learn a certain skill or technique when your body was in a certain um, physical state, and then by changing your body morphologically or neurologically or increasing the physical capacity in your body like getting stronger getting more explosive getting faster he basically says you shifted your attractor landscape um slightly because now basically you have a brand new body and the skill that you you had acquired through a previous body if you like now has to be able to express itself with your new body again if you like to use that expression. so have you sort of seen that from a coach's standpoint too that you know, when you've changed maybe a physical attribute in, a, in an athlete, so again, maybe an athlete got stronger or their rate of force got better or just uh, an element of their power output capabilities or uh, some of their speed attributes got better, that they nearly sort of, their technique was a bit, whoa, it's uh, a bit all over the place. Uh, it, it, like, it, it needed to restabilize, basically, with their new sort of uh, body, if you will, in terms of, you know, their, their higher physical capacity. Oh, yeah, a-
1: absolutely. So technique is always... Prevalent in our in our workouts in mm. some capacity, yeah, certainly because that. And, and again, depending on what sports you work with, I work with a lot of tennis athletes. I got golf athletes and baseball athletes. Um, those are very fine specific motor skills. That yeah, if all of a sudden you know I have a tennis athlete, uh, you know they, they get a lot stronger. With, I don't know, say in their shoulders, their upper traps and shoulders and. Now, now their, their, their arm isn't able to get to the position that it was for, for a surf
0: they yeah. start
1: developing pain. You know what I mean? You can see that, um, you know, so you like sports like that, you gotta be very specific with watching technique and strength in certain things because again, uh, too much can change things. Um, and that's, yeah, I've seen that with, uh, athletes that kind of squat relatively uh, wide, like a, like a, uh. Like a, not not trying to knock powerlifters, but powerlifting squat, where they have their toes turn up, so they're trying to spread the floor, they're pushing their knees out, now they overdevelop the abductors and adductors, well, more of the adductors, and then when they run, they tend to be more pigeon-toed, um, you know, and their foot's always kind of out, and uh, um, they're not able to, to get a proper toe off uh, and stuff like that, because now they've overdeveloped those adductors. Um. I know that from experience, because I used to try to, Power left a bit, and I used to blow out the insides of my underwear and my, my shorts all the time uh, because it was just so overdeveloped with that. So that's one of the things with too much wide squatting or box squatting can certainly affect that. And, uh, um, yeah, so, so we always try to monitor technique. And, again, what's great about specialized exercises is, again, uh, you see an improvement in strength. You're going to not 100%, but you're going to generally see an improvement in their technique. Um, Cause, Cause
0: it's bridging that gap the sort of special, especially actually kind of bridging that gap constantly.
1: Exactly. But you don't want to just do specialized and say, A is going to equal B uh, and then just assume that it's going to transfer. You want to work on it because like, for instance, I, I worked with tennis and golf athletes. We'll come in here and we'll do hip rotation, uh, weight shifts and hip rotation exercises and stuff like that. But then they'll go out there and they say, well, my, my swing has gone to shit. Well, mm-hmm. because they didn't try to, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't work on the whole they just worked on the part assuming it's going to transfer fully to the whole and it it, it fucked it up it's uh,
0: uh it's uh I, I love I love the swearing this is Irish podcast people fucking yeah um <laughs> so you can swear you can swear away in this this episode yeah but yeah, uh, no, like so, kind of uh, re- restabilizing the technique is kind of the phrase that that comes to mind there. But yes. it's it's interesting too because I I spoke with Al Vermeer last Sunday week. Self and Al would would speak uh, quite regularly. He's good, very very. He's obviously a mentor of mine and a very good friend and uh, um just love the guy. And uh, obviously Dan Faft is another huge uh, mentor of mine and I'm pretty sure nearly everyone is is a uh, is a mentee of Dan at this stage. But Dan. Uh, Dan started to do, I don't know, like, started to do, he's been doing it for years, so it's been a long time. But after his athletes would lift, he would always put like some type of coordination exercise after they lifted. So the athletes in Altus would go out and throw some medicine balls after their strength after their weight session, and they would do some rudiment stuff in terms of like you know just sort of like lower lower limb condition. but also a lot of like elastic reactive type um, development too for the lower limb. And I remember asking Dan, like, why he, like why does he do that? And he just felt that it helped with re-coordination. Again, almost to, like, re a bit of coordination in terms of, like, um, elastic reactive properties in the connected tissues. And then with the medicine ball throws, almost like that triple extension coordination. Because he felt like that the weight room could kind of dampen down some of those coordinated abilities. So it was like an, almost a reboot, he would say. And then the reason I bring up Al is because Al used to tell me uh, at the end of weight sessions, he always liked to have his athletes finish with some, like, rapid elastic, like, uh, mini jumps on and off a step, because he felt it just helped as well stabilize sort of, like, the, the transfer of the strength into some, like, speed. And he said he can get least to do some skipping drills as well. And then when I was talking to Al, I mentioned that Dan did the same thing, and then Al was like, get me Dan damn fast email, we need to talk. Yeah. Uh, so those who are connecting up right now, uh, over that, but it's just kind of funny uh, you know, these kind of guys never really met, look at it through different lens, and then there's yourself has been influenced obviously by Dr. Yes's and then the Berkshanskys and Yosef and all that, and it's kind of like you guys are similar sort of kind of concepts coming through maybe through slightly different ways
1: Yeah, definitely, I mean those guys those guys are smarter than I'll ever be, so yeah, if that's what they're doing then shit, maybe that's something I should start looking into um, I don't I, I don't we don't do that type of stuff with the intent of what you know Dan and uh, Al have in mind like afterwards we're always when they're done with their exercise we're always trying to do some sensory stuff so there mm-hmm. is movement and coordination and things involved with that um, you know but again I, I, I don't you know we, we're kind of falling into what Dan was talking about that's not the intent of it but it, it does make a lot of sense
0: yeah,
1: uh, yeah. right now it kind of just gives a little validity to, to doing it so thanks.
0: Right, so I've have, I've have like a ton ton of questions. Well, I think there's a ton, a lot of questions here to your chapter. First one, I'd like you to talk about for the listeners is this concept of proactive inhibition, which was a really nice concept you had. Uh, the title of the paragraph was "Old habits die hard," and um, so maybe just describe like proactive inhibition just for the listeners.
1: Yeah, it's a a protective mechanism in the brain to protect what was old and what we used to do. Um, you know what I mean? So. It's for athletes who, or anyone who's ever tried to work with runners who, who heel strike. Well, they you should know that trying to get an athlete to not heel strike when they run is very hard. Uh, it's not easy. They might be able to do it at first, but to be, be get it to become a uh, unconscious, competent movement is very hard because the, their body is going to reset right back to what it used to do. So
0: talk about uh, that drill you do. You know, the three jumps on the heels and three jumps on the forefoot.
1: Yeah. So. I, to get an, I'm not a smart person. So a lot of times I have to do things myself and I have to feel it for it to, to click or to make sense. So I try to do that when I start with an athlete to get them to understand the difference between running on your, with a heel strike first in a, as opposed to a, you know, midfoot or whole foot strike, depending on, you know, who you talk to, what experts, but nonetheless, just not landing on their heel first. So I like, uh, I'll tell all the listeners right now, stand with your feet underneath you, pick up your toes. Now jump three times as high as you can landing on your heels and see how, how that feels. Now, yeah, it's going to feel awkward and you're not going to jump very high, but from a landing, from a, from a force perspective, it should feel very hard and not pleasant. Now, uh, pick up your heels, stay on your toes and do it three times. Obviously it's going to be easier, but it should feel softer. Uh, and that's the, the point I try to get them to, to, uh, to understand, is when you run on heels first, when you strike the ground with the heel, it sends a tremendous amount of braking forces uh, up your body. Now, I do always, when I, when I make this uh, statement and argument, I, you, you do see backlash where people say, well, this marathon runner, this person's been heel striking forever, and they're, they're fine. Well, why do some cars, you know, go 5,000 miles before they need it to be taken in, and then some are only 100 you know what I mean? Well, it's just the individuality of, of the mechan- and the machinery, but I, I think we know through science that, uh, yeah, running heel striking is not the best uh, for your tendons, for your ligaments and stuff like that. Um, and I can honestly say, since uh, I've been assessing running mechanics, I have never met an athlete, uh, regardless of age, who complained of patella tendonitis or knee problems that did not strike on their heels. Uh, and nine out of 10 times, I've never met an athlete, nine out of 10 times, not, so not foolproof that, that complained of shin splints that didn't heel strike. Um, so those are, uh, just two very simple, uh, things that we're always trying to, well, not simple, but things we're always trying to look at and work on. And when I start working with an athlete and I get their history of injuries and those come up, well, those things kind of come to mind right away. And then when we slow motion analysis, uh, I'm able to break it down and show them. Um, you know, Another thing is just take your shoes off. I, I, I had two ladies, older ladies, they're tennis athletes. They're, I think, late 40s uh, and early 60s come in. Both have calf problems. Uh, so we did a full assessment. They had a tournament coming on, so they won a full mechanical assessment. Both of them run on their heels. So when they came in, I made that point of jumping. So I had them take off their shoes and run. The one lady, when she took off her shoes, immediately went to a four foot strike. Immediately, without being cued about it, without anything like that, she didn't think about it. She just took her shoes off and ran. She went to a four-foot strike. And I have plenty of video and, and pictures to demonstrate this of other athletes. The other lady, she kept running on her heels. And when I asked them what it felt like to run without their shoes, the lady that was four-foot striking said it felt softer and it felt better. The lady that was running on her heels the whole time, um, she had bad plantar fasciitis and bad history of calf issues and even knee issues, um, she said it hurt, it hurt like hell, because well, heel striking without your shoes hurts like hell, so I'm not a big fan of uh, of sports shoes, but that's that's another topic for another day, um, great book by, I think it's Dr. Bruno, The Biomechanics of Sports Shoes, um, definitely oh, wow. recommend people that. checking that out.
0: Okay, uh, next one then is working for the brain, not against it, and you bring up uh, these three modern learning strategies, uh, metacognition, constructivism, and mediation um could you just touch on those three
1: yeah well in a nutshell i'll just try to keep it simple um it's just trying to get the athletes to become aware um awareness breeds cognition uh Mm. so aware but not just aware but from a sensory standpoint of what it feels like uh so one that's why i do those things to get them to become aware of it because now when we do our exercises whatever the mechanical issue is for a baseball player who doesn't use their hips, and we're trying to work on the separation between their hips and shoulders, or their weight shift, getting them to feel that because that sensory information is what's going to help to develop to bypass that proactive inhibition, but but create that new sled down the, the down the snowy hill effect. Yeah. Um, you know, because the more you practice it, the deeper those those tracks in the snow get. So we're. The, to,
0: isn't the saying inside you, the same in? Uh, Neuroscience or neurology is uh, neurons that fire together, wire together. Exactly. So we're not
1: necessarily trying to create uh, or, or, or reconstruct uh, or, uh, their old mechanics. We're, we're trying to almost build a new one, yeah. so to speak. But, again, in order to do that, we have to have sensory information. So that's where a top-down approach is not a bad thing from a motor learning perspective because the athlete has to be aware. They have to be thinking about it. They have to feel when they're doing these things and one of the ways to lose sensor information is to go at full speed. So that's why we will go slow. We we start slow and build fast. Um we we uh they got to be aware, they have to feel it. Uh so we start slow so they can feel what it feels like and I usually tell them uh you know when when you feel like you're going back to your comfort zone, that's your old way. When you are Feels awkward as shit, and your, <laughs> and it just feels weird. That's that's the new way, and that's what we got to use. So I don't try to say bad versus good or anything like that. I just say old versus new, and that's a type of motor learning that's out of Australia, old way versus new way. Um, so try to use sensory information to bypass that, and, and again, create the new tracks down the snowy hill. And that's where what not a lot of people understand about specialized exercises. And again, if you're trying to match all five criteria. Principal dynamic correspondence, yeah, they don't match, but they match at least three of them. If you think about it, uh, specialized exercises can help teach learning, uh, in biomechanics. And so we use that from a learning perspective to get a feel of the movement, to get a feel of an athlete using their hips in golf or in tennis or in throwing or in swinging a bat, whatever it is to you, to feel the ability to drive the thigh forward, um, when they're doing a knee drive um, or a paw back or whatever it is, so that that feeling can help teach them, and then that's where we got to live for a little bit, and that's where we got to practice, and that's where we can change the task maybe a little bit, we can change the environment a little bit, uh, and get in some constraints led approach. But to, to first start, they have to be aware and they have to be thinking about it, and they have to be able to feel it.
0: Yeah, it's over here in Ireland, we have our traditional games, the Gaelic games, and there's been this sort of discussion, it's been a bit of a debate about, I suppose it's with any field-based field, field uh, base game, like. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you could put, put rugby and uh, Soccer and Aussie Rules into this as well, um, but there's been this sort of debate between people who are very drill-based related in terms of skill development and other people who are all small-sided games. and. You know, the small set of games people are like, you know, drills are too structured. You know, they don't teach them, like, awareness or they don't, like, teach the players, like, how to, like, read the game and all these. Like, they don't they don't basically get the at least ready for what the true game is, which is chaotic, like, which is true. But then the guys who, who are kind of on the drill end are like, you can't bring people who don't even have the sound foundation, of the skill technique, and then put them into a game. You know, be like just taking it's, – it's like taking – you know, like, just someone who's never, ever played the sport before and say, right, you're going to just lump you in there to a game now until you get on. But the, the small set of game people say, oh, they'll, they'll, they'll learn. and then. But the drill base people are saying, well, they, what if they don't get enough, like, exposure to the drill? So, like, again, it's a spectrum where, like, you kind of need that sort of, like, global pattern first and then put the variability on top of it seems to be what a lot of the motor control theory seems to be coming to nowadays is that, like, you need a sort of gross movement pattern first and then you control variability on it. But if you don't have that gross movement pattern down... Then throwing a ton of variability on it mightn't be a clever idea. Just kind of like block into more random practice.
1: Well again, I th- yeah, absolutely. And I it's it's you know, it's I'm not gonna take an athlete who heals strikes or has all these other mechanical issues and put him in a blender, because all you're gonna get is shit soup. And I'm not gonna take an athlete who has very good mechanics and not work on the other sensory things and, and, and games and and drill you know, the, the things you were just talked about. And create a robot out there where they can't think or move for themselves. So they, again, it, it falls—it's a spectrum, and we need all of it, in my opinion. It just depends on what and where. Um, it's and, and with the game stuff, I love it. Like I, um, Cameron Joss put me onto uh, Ian Jeffrey's Game Speed, and I love a lot of those drills. And we've been trying to use a lot more in my in my facility with that because I I think there's I mean obviously there's something from it from a learning perspective, uh, you know, kind of that competitive play type of thing and just trying to figure shit out um, to, to beat this person or to beat this, whatever it is. But um, I'll break it down even a step further. You know, what if the athlete has peripheral vision issues and they're not, evil, they're not able to, to peripherally see as well? What if the athlete has conscious control issues of their eyes and now they start thinking and they lose the ability to control their eyes when they're doing games and they're doing drills? So we try to break it down. I try to also break it down from a visual perceptual standpoint so it's I don't know if you want to call it a triangle where we got mm-hmm. the mechanics we got the the games and the, the environment and in the, the you know all that kind of stuff but then we break it down with the visual skills as well that go into it because you have an athlete who doesn't see very well uh, you know ha- has some uh, pursuit issues with their eyes or have some cicadic issues with their eyes or they lack depth perception things can get a little bit harder and again when you put them into a game they still got a, or a you know, these types of drills, games, they still got to figure shit out, but it just, it's not, it's going to make it a little harder. So I try to work on all of that um, with by our a, athlete.
0: By the way, you're coming back for a three on tree on decisions. So.
1: <laughs> right, cool, man. But uh, I hope that makes sense. So again, I'm not just trying to create robots and I'm not just trying to put shit in a blender. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to depend on what the athlete needs and what the issue is. We try to work on all of it um, and put it all together. Because uh, you know the the you know the game I always play with my athletes as well. Uh, rugby. What percentage, uh, Robbie, would you say is physical if you had to give a percentage?
0: Well, actually, rugby isn't my sport, so it's it's game games. But obviously, I'm 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 well versed, or not well versed, but I love rugby and I watch and I follow. Well, let's say uh,
1: soccer. Say say a- any sport. Pick a sport, but let's just say rugby right now. What what percentage would you say is physical
0: in, in terms of the demands of the game? Yeah, in, in terms of contact. Yeah, all, well, just all of it. The demands of the game of the athlete. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a massive part Yeah, okay. So uh, usually
1: when I ask an athlete that, they'll say, oh, 75%, because they know the next question is, I'll say, well, what percentage is mental? And they'll say, well, you know, that that's 75, or that's 50%, or that's 25. But then I'll ask them, what percentage of the sport is visual? And they go, oh, shit. Because they don't ever think about that mm. side of it, because to me, I want to work on all of it. You know what I mean? I'm trying to work on the brain, the body, and the behavior. I stole that from Sean Mishka, uh, the three Bs. Um, you know, so we're trying to work on, all of that, I'm not just trying to get them physically better and then put them in a bunch of uh, uh, some, you know, randomized games and drills where they got to solve things if they still have perceptual issues, so it's kind of all-encompassing, if, if that makes sense, at least what I try to do.
0: So then, I actually like this little chapter you have here on arguments against special exercises, and you were saying that some state that nothing we do in the weight was specific and that any, quote-unquote, specific exercises are few, five, due to a low production, You say to this I do agree, but only to an extent. Many coaches believe specialized exercises are exercises that repeat the whole competition movement. Um, and basically, you're saying, well, this is true. Usually, it's more so parts of the movement that we're overloading, uh, like the knee drive, shown in the picture you have here in the chapter. So, maybe you touch a bit on that. And then you got into the conjugate method. And I love the way, actually, how you summarize this. Um, basically, you know, meaning that you're you're selecting exercises that are developing both a physical ability and also improving technical mastery. Some maybe get a little bit into that area. Um, yeah.
1: Um, so I'm sorry, Rob. Repeat the first first part, but I'm sorry.
0: Sorry, it's my, it's I speak so fast. I get that. So the the the, the paragraph on page 62 was arguments against specialized oh. exercises. So oh. you were you so to restate that again. Some, some coaches are like, well, you know, they're, 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 there's no point in doing these because nothing within the weight room is ever that specific due to their low force reduction. And you were kind of like, there is a bit of truth to that, but you're like, we're not trying to completely resemble the actual pure 100% sports uh, technique from a whole standpoint. We're, we're getting a, a component of that we can overload to a certain degree, so maybe like a knee drive. And then yep. you, went, you went in then to the conjugate method where it's a blending of both developing that physical capacity and uh, working on technical mastery.
1: Yeah, so the arguments, and a lot of people who do, for those, not not a lot of people, but for those that do specialized exercises, they always bring up Bondarchuk's criteria of, you know, uh, general, special, preparatory, special, developmental, and then the competitive. But they don't understand that uh, the special developmental, he even states that they can be single joint exercises. So most people think it's that's, that's kind of a whole. So a lot of the questions I would get, so for American football, the running back position – they would try to create exercises that resemble what the running back has to do in an inside zone or a, uh, a power run and stuff like that. Like, no, that's, that's a competitive exercise. That's more like a, a drill. You know what I mean? If we're trying to do a true – I mean, don't get me wrong. That is technically part of a specialized exercise. But from a, what we can do in the, in the weight room or as a, as a physical preparation coach, is we got to look at the skills of the running back. So the skills are the hard skills are they run and they, they laterally move. So we got to look at their lateral movement and we got to work on their running. And then we look at the hard skills uh, or the uh, the key movements based off of that. And that's kind of what the specialized exercise work on. And then we can work towards. So we don't just do knee drive and assume that my running back is going to get better. You know, with that one running back, we did knee drives, but the he also had to do we did uh, he also has to run. I mean that's a specialized exercise, so we do sled sprints or, or weighted sprints. We did do flying sprints. Uh, I don't have any twenty thousand dollar piece of equipment to do over speed stuff. Um, you know that's becoming uh, popular. With the ten eighty, uh, I would love, love to, but that's above a bit above my, above my pay grade. Um, but we do do over speed when it's needed um, and stuff like that. Uh, but to say that, like a knee drive, yeah, okay, from a from a, a, a speed standpoint and a muscle contraction standpoint, it doesn't fully resemble the speed of movement when, when we sprint. Correct. But we can do the knee drive in a plyometric, plyometric fashion that is closer on the spectrum than, let's say, a step-up, let's say a, a squat, let's say anything other else you can come up with in this weight room. You know what I mean? At least it's closer on the spectrum. And it's using the range of motion and the and the, and the muscles that, uh, that are used uh, when you run. So again, at least it meets three, maybe four of the criteria, not all five, but it's closer than anything else that other people can come up with in here. Um, so that's kind of my, my argument with that. It, it may not be truly specialized and, you know, that's okay, but it's closer. Um, and that's kind of what, what it's about. And, you know, uh specialized exercises, a lot of them are just either lighted or heavier uh, implements. And that's pretty much, much what a knee drive can be. It's a, it's a lighter or a heavy, well, can't go lighter, but it's a, 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 it's a light or a heavy implement, and we're just trying to overload that movement, uh, um, depending on what we're trying to do with it. Um, and then the second part of the question, uh, the remind con- me. Uh,
0: the, con- the conjugate, uh, so you were saying that, uh, you know, the conjugate method, the blending of developing a physical capacity along with the technical mastery.
1: Well, that's what the original conjugate sequence uh, was from Berkashansky. It's it's the yeah. blending of technique and strength. A lot of people, in, at least in the United States, assume it's from Louis Simmons, uh, which that's the conjugate method, not the sequence system, so it's different. But the sequence system is the blending of strength and technique, um, and, and Bonnerchuk talks about that as well, uh, being able to, and, and that re- reverts back to what we were talking about earlier, just making sure that strength developments and, and technical developments go hand in hand. So we're not just trying to do one or the other and then hope it transfers. Uh, yeah, and there, then-
0: there was a really good paragraph in, uh, in the chapter 64 where you were saying in his second edition of the special strength training my coaches by doctors uh, Yuri and Natalia Berkshansky, uh, they say it's necessary to put a significant amount of time to the perfection of te- technical technical mastery and then after this it is best to couple the conjugate method uh, to special strength training and um, which provides simultaneous uh, resolution on the two tasks so basically perfect technique and then try to increase those um fire motor abilities or physical capacity so that then you can execute that skill with the most amount of force and the least amount of time essentially yeah
1: uh, exactly. Just get more bang for your buck and be more efficient. Is really what I get out of reading that stuff. Is how can we be more efficient? Um,
0: it, it's funny because I, I remember talking to James Smith saying like I you know I read that shit like eight years ago, but you just you, you just you just weren't in the 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 space the mind space to understand what the fuck they were talking about.
1: Well, yeah, because uh, unfortunately they're either no longer with us or uh, they're you know they don't speak very good English or they're across the pond somewhere. Uh, so getting a hold of them is, is hard. Uh, what I'm fortunate to have is a as a mentor in Yosef and Doctor Yesus, who one can put me in contact with them, but two can also they've talked to him. they've spent time
0: yeah, with them,
1: they've that. worked with them. You know what I mean? Uh, so two degrees of separation, they can literally tell me what this was meant for. Uh, what's interesting about Yosef, and I hope uh, this doesn't get him in trouble, but he's never read any of his books. He just talks to the uh, talks to the authors.
0: Yeah.
1: You know what I mean? He's never read any of his books, which is unbelievable because he's got, I, I, in my opinion, I, I'm biased, but the best literature collection of books out there. And he's never read a single one of them. He just talks to the authors.
0: He's a. So, not uh, another great friend and mentor of mine. It was nice like, speaking to Yosef there on Saturday.
1: Yosef's good shit, man. Um, he's a very knowledgeable person, and what's crazy is he's never read any of this stuff, which. You know, uh, I, I spend countless hours reading his stuff and trying to understand uh, what the hell it means. And he saved me a lot of time since we've become friends where I can just ask him, hey, what did Bonner mean when he did this or what did this mean? And if he doesn't know, he's not afraid to say he doesn't know. He'll just put me in contact yeah. or, yeah. you know, what I mean, which is really cool to have, um, you know, and that's how uh, I, I got to talk to Natalia because uh, I just had a lot of questions. So he's just like, here, you ask her. So I got to Skype, and then she was kind enough to edit a bunch of my uh, – she edited my chapter in the new book this year on the shock method, and uh, she edited some, some some articles that I wrote for Elite Fitness, but uh, getting it from the horse's mouth.
0: So uh, what time we are we at here now? So I've been a few minutes, and, and then, as I said, listen, we'll, we'll definitely, I'm definitely going to have you back on anyway if, if you uh, if you can make the time. Of course. Um you got these general rules to follow. Most of them are common sense. You know, you got buy it's Very important to get buy-in. Embracing mistakes, which I'll ask you to touch on, is very good. How you deliver feedback, um, short and sweet, too, in terms of how much time you dedicate in a session. Um, multiple sessions, recovery, and then uh, this this was probably one of the best quotes in the book. You got plan ABC was the title of this last paragraph in this section, and. The quote was uh, sometimes the most adaptable person in the gym needs to be the coach. Which I thought was a fantastic little quote, which I'm gonna definitely steal from you, Jeff. But yeah. in, in terms of just general rules to follow, there, I mean, buy-in is pretty self-explanatory. But embracing mistakes, really like that, uh, it's, it's n- nothing new to myself. But but again, a lot of coaches they're they're striving for perfection too quick, and I think nowadays we know like mistakes is learning. They're not a negative things. Just like when a baby learns to walk or talk. So maybe just speak about embracing mistakes and and how you deliver feedback to towards your athletes.
1: Yeah. Um, one, from a buy-in standpoint, if, if, depending on what the mechanical issue is, they're not going to, if they're a heel striker, for instance, that's pretty universal running for all sports. So if they're a heel striker, if they don't want to change that, then they're not going to change that. And no matter what drills or whatever you're going to do, they're not going to change that. So that's what I meant by buy-in. Some of the other stuff, mechanically, again, depending on what the issue is, does not always necessarily that hard to fix but you need to get by and then um you know from a from a feedback standpoint you know there's a i know there's a for a while there's a great bit of debate as far as uh external internal queuing this and that um and, and i'm just a whatever fucking works person whatever gets the point across person hank kragenhoff uh, uh has helped put me on to where uh, we use a test now, a Scantron test that helps measure the left and right brain mm-hmm. and in what circumstances. So I have my athletes take that so I can better understand how they learn. So some athletes need internal cueing. Some athletes need external. Some athletes need to discover. You know what I mean? Some athletes need just different things in different circumstances. So I don't try to just adhere to one. Uh, yeah, an external focus is great. I've read the book by uh, um, that's out else, there yeah. and I've read all Nick Winkleman's stuff. Uh, but it doesn't solve every issue. It's just one part of it. And so you got to figure out what works for the athlete. That's rule number one in motor learn. Find out what works. doesn't matter how stupid it is. Doesn't matter what it is. Find out what fucking works. It's got to work. That's, that's, that's number one.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. And then kind of, uh, go from there. We, we embrace mistakes, meaning like it's okay to fail. I don't remember. I think I got this from Chris Corpus, but I don't remember. I allow about a, what, a 30% failure rate with what we do. That's okay. Failure is not bad because that means we're trying to stretch those boundaries and try to learn. But when I see, so I try to do like a a baseball analogy. So if I see uh, two strikes or maybe three strikes that I don't like of bad mechanics, then we stop and we just move away. And we'll come back to it. So that's kind of some of that contextual interference. We'll come back to it. Uh, But we want to do it when we're mentally fresh and we're trying to learn. Um, not when we're just trying to repeat shitty motor patterns. So we don't do drills for 10 minutes or five minutes. Sometimes it might be one minute. Sometimes that athlete is just dog shit, and they can only give you a minute of their attention. I mean, it's really what we're trying to to teach to is to their attention spans. Uh, And, you know, I don't know about the athletes you have, but my athletes sometimes, majority of the time, it's very, very short. But we will chunk it up, and we will do it multiple times in a session, multiple times in a day, in a week, so on and so forth. So over time, it adds up. You know what I mean? But – we only want to do it when it's when when they can at least you know get get it right more than wrong, uh, and there's not more than two strikes um, or three strikes. Um, so that's that's what I meant by embrace failure and just trying to we'll, we'll chunk it up. So we might do go outside right after warm up, do it for five minutes. That's when they're freshest, and then we'll come in. We'll do some stuff. We'll do our jumps. We'll do our exercises, and then we might go right back outside and we might do it for another two minutes, and then we'll come in, and then maybe in the gym we'll do it for another minute. You know I mean? Just that, but over time, what, what's that add up to? It adds up to six, seven, eight, nine minutes, as opposed to just going outside for ten minutes, where the first few were good and then they kind of went to dog shit.
0: Yeah, I like that. Uh, you you mentioned that actually in um, in the part, in the in the in this part of the uh, chapter where it's short and sweet, and you had here just a uh, page sixty-five and sixty-six. The original set of pages, so that if people have the book, they can just look at it while I'm talking here. But uh, you said I generally follow two strikes rule. If the athlete messes up once, that's fine. If they want, uh, if we want them to fail and work through the mistake. However, after the second mistake, I generally stop the exercise. That does not mean we will not move back to it later in the session. But I do not want them practicing too many uh, practicing the mistake too many times in a row. Obviously, that's from not only just a learning standpoint, but probably even just a motivation thing too. Is it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, from a motivation standpoint and. Uh, um yeah, I mean, also it helps with the parents to get buy-in from the parents because the parents like when I give homework, yeah. uh, and so I'll do that. Um, and I've read a study that uh, I'll try to make the athletes practice before they go to sleep. I heard, I, I found a study that uh, showed that improved motor learning happens when an mm-hmm. athlete practices like five, ten minutes before they get into bed. I
0: was just going to ask you about that, about uh, yeah, have you factor sleep into that? Because I've, I've heard similar things. So I haven't actually read or looked into the literature, but yeah, I, I haven't
1: really fully studied to see you know if that's true or not. But yeah, that sounds good. I'm yeah. I'm for it
0: in terms of uh, yeah retention. I've, I've heard things, but all right, uh, it's funny with that internal external cue. It's funny because I've listened to a few podcasts with Brett Contreras. I'm actually another very good friend of mine. I got to spend a lot of time with Brett when I was in Arizona. But uh, in terms of the external internal, Brett, Brett made a good uh, good uh, point to that. Uh, and I'm really sure that the study did come out now, but apparently, like, himself and Brad Schoenfeld did a study on internal for and external cueing for bodybuilding, and it was shown that internal was way more better. And, like, you know, because obviously bodybuilding is that mind-muscle connection. Yeah. And, uh, he was on Jason Perugia's podcast there, Brett, and he was a very funny thing. He was like, external seems to be better for a performance outcome. So he was like, Jason imagine you, you, were, you had to, like, jump over this, like, pit of lava, and he's all, like, I'm not going to, he says, I'm coaching, he's, like, I'm not going to go there, Jason, feel your quads. <laughs> yeah, feel, exactly. feel your glutes. He's, like, Jason, <laughs> fucking drive your feet into that ground, and imagine you have to jump five feet past that lava. Whereas then with bodybuilding, like, it's not, you know, you're not going to be, like, Oh, drive that dumbbell up towards the roof when you're doing a bicep curl. It's like, you no, know, squeeze your bicep, squeeze your bicep, squeeze it. Like, you're more internal. like. And then the other thing Brett said is that he's, he thinks that a lot of internal cues are better for correcting form. So he's like, for more hypertrophy correct and correcting form, he thinks internal cues are better for form output. Maybe uh, external seems to be better, you know. like So, like, if you were like doing an Olympic lift or a jump, you say, you know, push the ground away with your feet or drive the earth away or whatever it is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Hank. Hank told me that uh, with uh, his athletes and his Olympic sprinters, he's used internal and it worked. So yeah. who am I to argue with his results?
0: It makes so, sense. It Makes sense. People are. It just it, it just
1: determines. It's the context and the person which we're using it with. That's all.
0: Um, I don't know if this was you. I'm trying to remember. I only listened to the other day. Was it you or was it Ryan Banter? It was because I'm going through all of. It was funny. Like. Uh, I, I was just like, right, I'm picking a podcast, and I'm going to listen to all the episodes of it, and, like, I'm really uh, getting into Joel's one now, just, just like, and I've listened to a lot of them before, but I'm going back to, like, one and working my way through, and it was funny because when I went to go to no, no, number one on iTunes, it only went back as far as 22, so I Facebook Joel I said, Joel, your episodes only started 22, and he's like, jeez, I didn't know that, and, and he goes, thanks for telling me, so he fixed it, and it's all back to episode one now. Nice. But I don't know if it was you or in Ryan Banta, but it was something to do with moral control, and it was in Daniel Coyle's book about doing motors uh, tasks really, really slowly. Like uh, they were saying that and again I don't it's you or Ryan Banta and it couldn't be someone else, but it maybe it's you because you mentioned you know, your model you mentioned Daniel Coyle's book, but this idea of someone was doing like a backhand in tennis and they'd go through for like ten minutes, as in like the actual they'd actually do the action of the backhand for like ten minutes from start to finish. And apparently it was it was something to do with like with fiber recruitment and everything like that, and like the actual Learning on the brain pathways, and it was just something like that. Have you ever heard anything along those lines?
1: Yeah, it was. And I do remember reading that. And I did believe it's Daniel's book, and uh, I th- that I think that was Ryan. Um, but yeah, we do uh, over exaggerate. I try to get the athletes to over exaggerate movements to feel things. So if I'm teaching a weight shift for throwing, I gotta get. I try to, you know, my my cue is to push your hip out like a sassy teenager, and then I want you to push off, you know, push the ground away. You know what I mean? Things like that. Those might be my cues. That that's not always my cue. It just depends on the athlete. But from an external standpoint, they get that. He he
0: uh, was he was saying too, like there's some like inverted uh, recruitment of the fibers as well when he do something like this. Like he says, like it's high tension. Like you're you're getting the first to be really high tension, but they're going through. It. It's almost like FRC with with um, with Spina, like because when Spina does his cars, he gets you to like like get up to eighty or you know a, a subjective eighty percent recruitment while you bring the joint through. But it sounded like that's what Ryan was saying. Then if Ryan said that, it, so he was saying, imagine that back and again, like that they're squeezing the racket really, really hard and going through real slowly. He said like there's this basically inverted recruitment of fibers because you think going through so slowly is type one, but the fact that you're under such high tension, like high high motor units are also being recruited. Something Matt, I need to listen back to it again if I was asking you.
1: I haven't uh, heard that. I have to check that out. But uh, I mean, it makes sense. And from a sensory standpoint, they they're really feeling it.
0: Yeah, you know what yeah.
1: I mean? To, to bypass the, uh, the, the PI, the proactive inhibition. So it makes sense. I haven't had an athlete uh, squeeze or do anything like that, but I'll, I'll have to give that a try. I'm for, again, whatever works. That's that's really all I give a shit about.
0: Listen, I mean, that's I mean, the last bit, I suppose, is discriminative learning. So you got some rules here where you say learn the part, implement it as a whole, start slow, Use feelings is what you could. I, I think you, you spoke about you you'd often get the athletes to try and uh, and uh, speak back, so, you know, tell you what they were feeling as they were executing uh, uh, the technique because it helped also with the learning process. So and then use elaboration. So maybe with the of learning, then I mean, learn the part, implement the whole. Start slow is pretty satisfying. But using feelings in terms of getting the athletes to descriptively give you some feedback about what they're feeling. How, how have you found that, and how did you start to implement that?
1: Yeah, no, that's been a great tool. Uh, I like using my athletes' words. Um, yeah. That's just going to help.
0: That's kind of yeah. like that neurolinguistic linguistic program where, like, when you kind of use words, it kind of it seems yeah. to, like, get more buy-in, isn't
1: it? No, exactly, yeah. So I, I try to use the verbiage that my athletes use. So if they say it feels hard or it feels funny or it feels stupid or if it feels soft or it feels whatever terms they use, descriptive terms they use, that's what I try to use. And I try to get them to bring that out a little further. Um, because I want them, it's just going to make a connection better with them, um, and that's what I try to use to communicate with them. Um, and if they don't feel that, then that's a problem. Uh, and I want them to be able to discriminate between the two. Tell me what the the old way field way, uh, feels like, and what does the new way feel like, and what do, what does the difference feel like? I want them to try to explain it to me. Um, I try to get my athletes to teach as much as they can when they're in here. Because if they teach it, then they know it. So I try to get them to teach me. What does the difference feel like? What? What? Explain it to me. Um, and then I just use their words. Um, and I found that that's very, uh, that that works very well with teaching and and uh, connecting with with the athletes. Because you might have, you know, I have an I have eight year olds that ran on their heels. So I try to get their, you know, an eight year olds description, which is very specific. <laughs> you know, eight year olds don't have that much of a. Well, n- not most of them uh, are very artistic with their words, so they just say, "Oh, it feels hard." Mm-hmm. You know, where I might have a high schooler who says, uh, you know, a high school girl." Typical answer is, "It feels weird, it feels stupid." Um, <laughs> you know, so I try to use those words. Okay, well, does it still feel stupid? How 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 weird is it feeling now? Is it is the weirdness starting to go away? You know what I mean? Like I try to just use those words. Um, I,
0: mean, I know this sounds harsh, but. Those athletes then make you really appreciate the athletes that are like, really into it. <laughs> yes. you, you know, you know those athletes are like, oh god, I love training this guy. Yeah. Yes. So I got, there was a, I, a guy I saw him in the gym today. He'll never listen to this, but uh, Omar is his name, and uh, he plays football at a very high level. Say he's only eighteen, but he like he, he's gonna be like he, he plays for a very high level at that age, and I, I coach him from fourteen in terms of just his physical preparation work and he's a beast and he's just like the dream athlete you know what I mean he just always wants to better better feedback and it's just like I wouldn't appreciate as much if I didn't have these other like dogs that just like it's just like it's like getting blood out of the stone oh
1: absolutely yeah I try to <laughs> make fun a little bit I hope I don't insult anyone but like you know the levels of uh, competency right unconscious incompetent conscious uh you know incompetent conscious competent unconscious competent well with with my teenagers sometimes it's it's weird. Then it goes to stupid. Then it goes to less weird, and then it goes to feels better. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I try to use their words with my with my teenagers. But again, it's just try to make that connection so it sticks. Um, because I know as soon as the athletes leave here, not all of them, but some of them are just gonna fucking forget what we did, and they're just gonna go on about their day. Yeah. And then those that uh, care, they're gonna use, they're gonna remember that, and they're gonna try to you know express that. Um, and stuff like that. So uh, we we've helped, and, and that's just helped with the feeling, um, you know. And that's another reason why I like doing the contrast of mini hurdle drills to come in to do the knee drive to go back out there yeah. to be to, to feel the difference. Uh, because with the specialized exercises that we do, with the lower intensities uh, and higher reps, it helps build that that uh, neuromuscular pathway the, and the uh, the myelination of it and the, and the feeling. Um, they they feel it. Oh, I can feel my hips coming through now. I can feel. My knee drive. I can feel pawing back better, or whatever the issue is. Um, you know, so just it, it just helps from a learning perspective.
0: It's, it's funny too because at Altis uh, and Stu, what were you we saying? Stu was utilizing a similar concept in, in terms of uh, pairing or complexing certain exercises again to sort of you know give some uh, contextual feedback and then go into the actual specific drill. So. Like on on acceleration days, we would uh, use the run rockets, and usually that was to help with like projection. And then you know he might complex that maybe with like an acceleration with uh, with something on the, on the shoulders against feeding projection. And then get them finally to do some actual acceleration. So and yeah. also also too, he did it with the they call them wicket runs. It's, it's funny because I've ever heard Chris Carpenters too when I come like, across the mini runs, I don't know why they call them wickets. Uh, so I'm, not, I'm the same like I call them mini runs. I don't know where, wickets to me is cricket, you know so. Uh, yeah, but yeah. they would they would, they would uh, pair like uh, the mini hurdle runs with maybe some sort of, um, you know, 80-meter run maybe on the track then if it was a either endurance day or even on our lactic days, they might do a wicket run and then go into maybe a more uh, max velocity type run. So, yeah, it's interesting to see, you know, trying to get that context one drill and then try to transfer it into another. Absolutely. Jeff, just wrapping up here, uh, I didn't get a chance to ask you these the last day, so… Real quick on these ones, uh, what would you say have been the biggest mistakes you've made so far in your career? Maybe like a top three, and what were the biggest lessons you learned from them? Um,
1: mistakes. Let's no no particular order. Um, doing too much, um, is one. I, I look back at the programs I wrote, even with the high school football team that I started the one by twenty with, and I was like, what the shit was I thinking?
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, you know, uh, not. Not trying to reach people out further. Uh, coaches are a lot more helpful than uh, coaches give credit for. And uh, like Natalia Verkashansky and, and Hank are some of the nicest, nicest, aside from their professional expertise, the nicest people I've ever met, um, just ever. Uh, having having a, a blue moon beer with Natalia and teaching her, you know, putting an orange in the beer uh, you know, she's never seen that before. So it's just the conversation we had about that. It's just, she's just such a nice lady. Um, that's that's that. I mean, not reaching out sooner, just assuming that everyone's kind of mean and cruel, um, and, and just wants to keep their own information. Coaches are a lot more uh, selfless than, than we give them credit for. Um, yeah. So it's, that's that's been really cool. But I, I should have reached out sooner to people. Um, and then the third one, uh, just not. I, I continuously do it. It's hard being a business person, but I just don't feel like I read enough. Uh, I got to do a better job of just reading and constantly trying to uh, improve. Uh, I, I, it's it's not always easy to find time, but I, I make you know I can't make excuses. I should not make time. I should block time off. So that's just something, you know, from a personal growth standpoint that I knew need, need to do a better job of.
0: A really good resource is a guy called Jim Quick with uh, Recall uh, with Speed with speed reading and recall and retention. So, like, uh, it just it helps you obviously get through material quicker, but also be able to, to retain it better, too. Yeah, I've actually looked
1: into him. Um, and then um, there's a gentleman named, uh, oh, my gosh, there's a, a Russian psychologist out in Arizona that Yosef put me on, too, that teaches a almost a self-hypnosis. Uh, and he works with uh, people with learning disabilities and stuff to overcome that. And he, d- he works with a whole bunch of – he works with athletes, all types of stuff. But uh, I've lurked into that, too, because – if I could have a superpower, man, it would be to, uh, uh, it would be to just have, you know, a photographic memory, and that way I can just read I, everything.
0: I think, I think someone, asked, I can't remember who I heard it from, maybe it was Tim Ferriss, but someone had asked, uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett if, if they could have one superpower or what, what would it be, and it would be the ability to read more.
1: Yeah, I, I wish I had a photographic memory so I can remember, uh, you know, even, even two thirds of the shit I remember, I, I read, uh, when I do read and stuff like that, but, uh, yeah, that would definitely be it. And Jim Quick, yeah, it's a it's a cool resource. I've looked into that way. Well, you got to, one of his tips is you put your finger on the page, uh, what your right finger on the page because activates the left brain, and then you you drag it underneath the words because the physical touch of the paper. Right? There's certain tips like that. I've tried
0: yeah, to yeah. Like there, there, there's tips in like how to actually disseminate the book before you even like do the reading part. So like a lot of people say right, you get a book and then Bessie you do is go to the back of the book because it basically summarizes what the main tenets of the book. Then go into the contents and like each chapter usually is a main point in the book, and then like if you need to delve into a bit deeper, go by the paragraph. So you just basically it's like uh, Chinese dolls or whatever you call those things, you know, a doll inside of a doll. And then and then uh, if you actually have to read something like a page, you take a pen or your finger and you you always scan in two or three words from the periphery and then just basically read it real fast. And then at the end of each thing, you, so a page or paragraph, summar, summarize to see if you understood the information. So yeah, it's lots of stuff. So Jeff, uh, last two questions. Uh, yeah. Your t- your top advice, and then your top resources for all the listeners. So the advice and the resources. Uh, with the advice, the advice can be anything: life advice, business advice. It can be advice on all those fronts, uh, Training advice. I mean, we've done an hour. Or we're on probably three hours of training advice between the two podcasts now. But whatever advice, your top advice to listeners. Then in terms of resources. You know your top books and DVDs, videos, seminars. Yeah, I know you've mentioned a lot of your me- your mentors in terms of uh, Berkashansky's and Yosov and Dr. S's. But uh, any any type of resource it can be a person or it can be an actual product.
1: Yeah, reach out, man. Uh, just reach out to coaches. Uh, I uh, I try to improve my networking, meeting people such as you, Rob. Uh, it's been yeah. awesome. Yeah, uh,
0: it's been. Your, uh,
1: your great wealth of knowledge and and you have a lot of connections and you've had a lot of experiences so trying to trying to meet people uh you know i was fortunate enough to meet joel jameson or joel smith i'm sorry at uh at richmond and then uh kept in touch and that's how him and i became friends uh and i try to keep in touch with him as best i can and just just reach out to people um again coaches are far more helpful than uh, uh some coaches may think uh just reach out ask questions
0: it's so uh, funny because people always ask me, "How do you get these people on? Your, or like, yeah, how do you get people on your podcast? And how do you know these people? Or how do you contact them?" I'm just like, I just contact
1: them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just reach out to them. Um, yeah. You know, Professor Laddish. Uh, when I was trying to reach out to him, I had no idea he written all these books. He's an acclaimed motor control expert and head of like Motor Control Society of the World or something like that. And he's a uh, Bernstein expert. And I, I reached out to him, and he immediately got back to me. He was like, "Yeah, let's let's Skype tomorrow." And we talked for a while, and I, I sent him things, and he just continues to, you know, he'd be like, "I'm on a plane to a motor control thing out in Sweden," but yeah, here's my thoughts, and he's just he, a super nice
0: guy. He's my next now because I actually had papers of him Ladish, uh from uh, my masters, and it just made me you now think that I'm going to contact
1: him too. Well, yeah, and, he, and then he helped put me out uh, with uh, um, Zatsiorsky, and I was kind enough; uh, he was kind enough to put me in contact with Dr. Zatsyorsky. He's out in California, and. I got to Skype with or uh, talk with him, which was really cool. So uh, right. uh, again, people are far more helpful than we give them credit for. Reach out, ask questions. You know, um, don't try to seem like you're selling shit. Um, you know, just be like, hey, let me buy you a beer and let's uh, let's let's talk shop. Uh, but coaches coaches are great, and then resources. I, I'm going to be biased on this one, but I think Ultimate Athlete Concepts and their books. Um, are the best and then part yeah. kind of tying it back to the first question is reach out to yosef i know he's going to hate me for this and i know his wife d uh is going to hate me for this because he's on the phone consulting with coaches all the time but uh yosef is a he is so generous with his time and his information unbelievable, and,
0: uh, unbelievable. he's yeah. unbelievable
1: and he'll talk you're off man that guy has the gift of the gab there rob and uh he uh he he will talk you off and he's 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 had more conversations with more experts and people we've read with, and he knows more backstories of things. Uh, just, which, but
0: just, just as a human being, he's, he's, his own backstory is incredible too, you know?
1: Absolutely. His own backstory and his family and his upbringing and all that stuff, man, and how he met Dr. Yosses and his history of injuries. And just, yeah, Yosef's a great resource. So Ultimate Athlete Concepts books uh, and their information, their videos. Uh, I mean, Hank, uh, they published a book by Hank last year, which is awesome. What We Need is Speed, I believe is the name of it. Awesome, awesome book. Uh, great, Yosef, great
0: book, yeah.
1: Yosef's uh, book with Rick Bruner that came out, the Explosive Ergogenic book. Uh, Rick Bruner's a fantastic resource for people for in- information on ergogenics and nutrition and stuff like that.
0: I'm going to get him on the podcast. I've been trying for two years, and, and uh, even Yosef gets out. To, I actually have his number. Yosef's so like, just ran.
1: Yeah, just call him. I, I did that once because uh, he works with his his, his – Kids at the time were in high school and he worked with high school athletes. And so, so was I. So I had a lot of questions. Um, so Rick was just like, yeah, give him a ring. Um, so I did. Uh, but yeah, just don't be afraid to reach out and uh, check out ultimate athlete concepts. Um, you know, get all the information, read it, try to digest it, but write down questions and reach out to try to trace things back to the original source. Uh, I think that's something that we don't necessarily do. Try to find the context and the originality of ideas and books. Don't just try to take a Verkashansky book and be like, okay, I got this because I guarantee you don't, um, try to reach out to Yosef and, and whoever published the book, if Matt Tomey or if it's Jake Jensen or if it's Yosef or Dr. Yassis. uh, reach out and ask questions. Or Brian Mann. Or Brian Mann. Yeah. Dr. Mann wrote a book for Yosef too. Another great, uh, resource for the velocity based book. Dr. Mann's a great resource. And uh, and helped. an
0: absolute genius as well.
1: Yeah. He's just an awesome person. Um, awesome person and uh he's helped me a lot with getting velocity based in my my gym and get me a gym aware so he's he's a great man
0: Right, Jeff. the very last one we're, <laughs> we're, we're going to dinner and you can bring five people dead or alive who mm. and why oh jesus um jesus is one okay
1: <laughs> jesus, yeah jesus is one uh i'm a history major so i gotta go back a little bit martin luther king john f kennedy
0: Nice, People nice. that fascinate
1: me. Um, me too. Kind of me
0: too. I'm watching Selma again at the moment.
1: Yeah, that that was an era which I, that was the area of study for me when I was uh, getting my bachelor's in uh, history. Oh, um, we're,
0: we're so gonna have more conversations about that at some stage.
1: Yeah. Um, I love yeah.
0: history. I know all U.S. presidents off by heart and all like all that shit.
1: That's awesome. Um, you got me beat, but uh, that's what three. Shit, man. Um. <sighs> I don't know. This is a hard one. Honestly, uh, I, 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 Yosef and uh, coach 80 uh, coach 80 is, I mean, not excluding my father. My father should always, my parents should always be with me, but I, I'm going to keep family out of this one because that's just too easy. But uh, mm-hmm. coach 80, who I mentioned in the first podcast, uh, strength coach at Hamilton college, been a huge mentor and father figure in my life. Um, and he's, his stories, he's got some of the funniest, funniest fucking stories you'll ever hear um, that things that happened to him. And, He's just awesome, and Yosu's got great stories, and he can talk. And it's just—I know that would be a. Uh,
0: you wouldn't a, uh, think about bringing Yuri. I,
1: I've never met uh, Yuri. Um, I, I would bring Natalia. I, I know her. A Yuri would be cool, um, you know, but I don't speak Russian, and I, I know his English wasn't great, so I'm not trying to <laughs> exclude. But I, I, that would just probably be a little bit harder of a conversation.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, but don't don't forget, now, It's you can bring people better alive. Well, obviously because you have Martin Luther King, Jake, JFK, and Jesus. But I'd imagine, I'd imagine with Jesus there in the superpowers, he could easily like you know transfer Russian into English, like that little clip in Family <laughs> Guy. You know, he's like for my next trick, I'm turning water into boogie.
1: Into boogie, yeah. I am a Family Guy. Um, yeah, dude. Uh, that that's it. I hope I didn't insult anyone by leaving him out. My wife would be part of that if I had to.
0: <laughs> have to, i have to bring that
1: question right
0: i've asked yeah i've asked loads of this question, and when they don't say their partner I'm like oh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah well my wife's at every other dinner so she yeah, she, she yeah. wouldn't mind missing one with me but uh um yeah man i don't know five five's hard but that's a good that's, question
0: no, that's, that's a great answer all right jeff just stay online there real quick while i wrap up some guys yeah, part, part two with coach uh, jeff Meyer, absolute legend I'll uh, put all his contact details in there, so uh, Dynamic Correspondents, check them out if you're in uh, Jeff's area. Where exactly is, is D.C.? Uh, Pittsburgh,
1: Pennsylvania. So I know it's not actually Washington, D.C. I've gotten a lot of emails from people in the Washington area. Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Sorry, I meant but... D.C. and Dynamic Correspondents. I don't... I knew it was in Pennsylvania, already. Right. I was just making sure it was Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah,
1: I'm in the Berg, uh, South Hills of Pittsburgh, uh, Bethel Park.
0: The Berg, I like it. Okay, so guys... Uh, this is a, a absolute absolutely fucking, fucking brilliant episode. I loved it. Uh, so again, share it if you can. Subscribe. Leave reviews. All that stuff that other podcast people know more about. And I don't really pay attention to. We really should actually because it will help get more people on the show. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so guys, take care. I will talk to everyone soon. And as I always say at the end of every show, stay strong.